Welcome to the AI Minds podcast, where we explore the companies of tomorrow built AI first. I am your host, Demetrios, and this episode is brought to you by none other than DeepGram, the number one speech-to-text and text-to-speech API on the internet, trusted by the world's top startups, conversational AI leaders, and enterprises like Spotify, Twilio, NASA, the one that puts rockets into space, and Citibank. Today, we are joined by none other than Mike. What's going on, man? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you, Demetrios. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys inviting me for today's conversation. Um, it's always a pleasure to be able to hop on a you know, podcast and discuss, like, the future of, you know, what we see in terms of utilizing AI and uh, I think that, you know, in terms of philosophical approach, right, I think we're one of those types of people who have looked at it as an augment to what people currently do as an opportunity to actually help, you know, sort of build out proficiency and people feeling more comfortable about it. Because I think a lot of folks have this inkling of, you know, is it dangerous? Is it going to, you know, take away from what I what I am doing right now? And so, you know, we always believe that there is an opportunity to, you know, make the world a better place by simply adding in, you know, artificial intelligence to take out some of the menial tasks that uh, folks do. And so that's a little bit into an uh, insight of what we do here at FreeFuse. But uh, happy to be here and, of course, answer all of your lovely questions. Excellent. So I do want to get into FreeFuse, the tool that you are creating. But before we jump into that, I would like to go down a trip of memory lane and hear about how you got into tech. Sure. Um, so I'm actually an engineer by trade, right? Uh, the only problem with engineering that I saw, um, and maybe this is because I have some level of like impatience with like outcomes and things like that, but uh, the only problem that I saw as uh, something that I wanted to do was part of my PhD thesis. I was at Texas A&M University. I was getting my PhD and uh, I thought we had a really great idea for a new type of metal alloy, right? Now, when I found out what we were doing would take, a little, I don't know, like a decade to get pushed through, right? There was kind of that moment where you have to say to yourself, okay, where do I want to go with my life, right? Do I want to pursue this? And this could be great, but the payoff is 10 years. Or do I want to look into some new opportunities that I feel like are, are easier to iterate on? I can get much more, you know, uh, data from actually talking to people, seeing how their experiences work and, uh, you know, whether that's like a better path for me. And so I had kind of those two options. And I think both are, you know, have their positives and negatives. I, I was leaning more towards, of course, the, uh, you know, the actual project that we were working on at first. But the more I thought about it, the timeline of actually sticking with that and then not actually seeing if it could possibly get pushed through as a new type of material that people could use was pretty disheartening. Right. And for all that work, you know, the 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 downside risk seemed really great. And so I just felt like it made the most sense to actually utilize my experience in the teaching realm to be able to, you know, look at a problem that I felt like could be solved. Um, and of course, uh, like a lot of probably recent companies, uh, a lot of things were born from the, uh, you know, the pandemic times, right? And uh, they were born from 
uh, you know, a lot of folks recording their lectures um, at our school. And so I just got the idea that we should utilize the uh, the videos that we had, break them down into these decision tree, you know, modules and uh, utilize AI to do so. Right. Because the problem I kept on hearing was the, you know, the professor doesn't have time. They might be on multiple boards or they might be doing a bunch of research and writing grants and papers. The TAs definitely don't have time. I come from that world. I know that they barely have time to do anything, let alone being a TA, let alone being like a research assistant, right? So I knew that they didn't have time. Uh, and then, of course, the students just, you know, obviously had the the negative parts of the experience, which were, okay, I have all this material, but nothing's useful for me to review. So we blended the idea of breaking everything down into shorter bite-sized pieces of content so essentially like a, you know, much more palatable micro content that you could kind of peruse through in your own personalized pathway. And so that's what the first version of the, you know, Freefuse AI did. It was kind of like the, the first little kernel of the offering that I thought we could bring forth, which is what we have today. But, um, you know, a lot of that was built off of language models, right? And so I spent a lot of time actually trying to figure out, okay, so we're, we know how to use AWS. Maybe we'll just go and utilize that. It's the easiest thing, you know, early stage startup, try not to waste as much money as you possibly can, um, you know, at least like in a non-practical way. Uh, so, you know, that was fine, you know, for the, probably the first, I would say, you know, pilot programs and going into, let's just say like the first times we were maybe selling FreeFuse as a platform subscription. But over time, you know, we realized that and the way our system works is that we utilize the video or the actual audio transcript in order to make the micro content cuts. Right. So by having less accurate transcripts, we therefore, you know, have a less useful product. So I was actually introduced yeah. to DeepGram as part of, uh, you know, a search for improving our accuracy and improving what we were doing model wise. And so a lot of that actually came into uh, the forefront from a uh, suggestion that that uh, this individual had. And so that's kind of how, you know, obviously you and I got connected, Demetrius. And, uh, you know, from there, um, it's kind of leveraged all of that knowledge that I've had from being like an engineer all the way to now into what we've done product wise and how we think about building the product and how we, you know, kind of have a certain, you know, sort of idea towards quality in terms of what we do. So it's been very exciting. Um, you know, I feel like all of those elements have played a role. And so it's been uh, great to be able to, you know, obviously be here and talk more about those stories. So talk to me about building the product. And you, of course, looking back on it, I imagine you can draw a straight line, but going through the trenches and when you were building the product, what were some of these iterations that you were playing with how did it actually look in practice when you were going in the day-to-day -day and thinking about, should we make it a product that does X or should we make it a product that does Y? People are asking for these features or those features. What kind of North Star did you have there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I want to share the story of how I even started testing this thing to begin with, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of folks who listen to this have read Blue Ocean Strategy, or I forget if that's the original OG book or if that's the second book that they did. But like the very first time we did it, I was like, okay, let's like try and add as many differentiating points as I possibly can, right? 
So the original concept was, okay, we're going to give people choices as interaction points and we're going to add in voice recognition, right? It was, it was, a uh, you know, and not very well thought out, like a half-baked idea, right? Um, but I wanted to understand how people interacted with choices. Um, I guess it wasn't just very good data to start with because we added the extra little like wild card of like voice recognition. But I have to tell this story because it's so funny. Um, I actually took, uh, I forget what these things are called. I have one here, but they're, uh, one of the Amazon like, uh, assistants, but it has like a video screen on top of it. So we actually built uh, a little low fidelity version that we hard coded. And I have some of the nicest friends in the world. Uh, they were willing to sit down for 15, 20 minutes through my, you know, crazy, like, you know, kind of plans of what this could be, um, you know, and uh, they were nice enough to sit through, see what it was and actually use it. Um, but the funny thing is I was in Texas at the time because I was obviously a teaching assistant. And then I also had, um, you know, these folks that I knew were primarily in uh, Southern California, right? So, of course, the beauty of Zoom and, uh, you know, the thankful the school gave me a free Zoom account because I had, you know, I really just maxed out that that account as much as I possibly could. But um, I would actually go on Zoom and have people like actually yell the direction through the interface just so I could see like if it was, you know, maybe generating some kind of signal there. It's like the stupidest test probably like ever imaginable um there's not there's not even really that much relevant data because it's not even in the actual conditions in which it would normally be used but it's just so funny because i feel like there was a part of me then that thought that hey this is a super valid test like we could see like what kind of joy people have when they actually make these you know decisions and personalizing their experience like i found very quickly probably like i don't know a quarter or two later that like none of that data was like useful at all and so um yeah. I, I think that what a lot of people underestimate is the quality of your testing criteria like the actual uh thoughts around like am i you know how am i going to test if i'm right or wrong about this and then more importantly like what a, a, are you testing and are they actually high leverage things right because you can you could test the color of a button um, on a random page, that's pretty low leverage. But if you're talking about like, will the color of a button affect whether people purchase this through like a sales automation, then that's a lot different of a story, right? So um, I, I think that <clears throat> there's equal parts like iteration and there's equal parts like having that really solid product roadmap, right? And I think in the early days, there was the idea that, okay, this is the first piece uh, which was the auto editor and, and, you know, it has a video interface and you can have a library, but there needed to be more. Right. And so the idea was, okay, so you have interaction points. The next logical step is to be able to have interaction points as part of a P2P experience. Right. Okay. Well, where does that all actually fit in? Well, you know what, it makes sense to build out a community. Right. And so those all kind of like came out of the initial ideas of, okay, what are we actually doing here with this uh, experience and based on what we're actually doing what are like the logical things that people would also do like alongside it right because you know you want to at least make it so that there is some level of uh expectation that can be met so that people can feel like okay this isn't like a completely off the wall experience that I've, I've never had before which has some level of shock value and benefit but i think that there was there was like some quote from a guy, uh, he was like an artist, um, 
it's like the uh, it's the Maya principle, um, the most advanced yet acceptable, right? And what we wanted to do was, you know, take in what would be the acceptable parts, which were the more familiar stuff, and then obviously innovate in ways where people could feel like it was a fresh experience, right? Um, and so that's what we felt like we were kind of building towards in those early days. But um, it's sometimes hard to have a vision of what you want to do, especially in the early days, because you're very excited about all the possibilities. Um, at least we were, you know, and we're now reaching some parts of that roadmap now, but it definitely took a lot longer than I thought, because you never really consider what you need to do in terms of resources, aligning the right people to actually build out what you're doing. And there's a lot of other stuff as well. So, you know, that being said, I think those are some of the key elements to building properly, which is like having a vision that I think you can tailor over time, but equally as much knowing that you're testing the right thing so that if you get a signal for what you think is a good feature, you don't, you know, it's not like, you know, pixie dust, right? It's an actual real thing. I love this idea of the Maya principle, most advanced yet acceptable. So it doesn't confuse users because it's so advanced they're, they're like what do i even do with this how do i use this but it is advanced enough to where people are think oh wow this is delightful and you're almost going for that delightful aspect but not the surprising or overwhelming aspect of it and that feels like a really good north star to shoot for yeah and to add to that just really quickly, like there, you know, I think that what it really does is it actually activates, you know, a lot of people talk about the three different parts of your mind, right? Like the, um, the uh, paleocortex, the limbic system and the neocortex, right? And of course, like the stuff that's, you know, the oldest part of your brain, like, you know, the, uh, I think it's like the, the cerebellum and like the brainstem and stuff like that. Um, it's, they kind of call that, um, and I think in some circles, the the lizard brain or the reptile brain, right? And the whole idea behind it is if you have enough novelty, it gets that person, you know, that person's like, uh, you know, uh, paleocortex uh, actually activated. And because of that, that's why a lot of people really like, you know, feeds or like, you know, uh, lots of novelty when it come into a, a user experience, right? That's why, you know, the feed concept when it was first introduced was, you know, great because you could literally just sit there and refresh as many things as you want, as you want to. Right. Um, but there's a give and take, right? You can activate novelty, which, you know, uh, that part of your brain really likes contrast, or you can activate fight or flight, which would be bad, right? You can two different automatically shut down. I'm not going to look at this. And you know, those are just things that happen. And it's kind of, you know, part of, uh, to me, one of the things that makes it so interesting to design for people, right? Because like, if you think about it, everybody kind of comes in with a lot of that same, um, a lot, you know, a lot of those same things that, you know, they might deal with, um, or we all have, you know, the same paleocortex response, right? It's the other stuff that actually kind of like, you know, sort of uh, changes our experience per se. But it's so interesting to have to design for people for that reason, because now you have to take into account like all of these psychological and you know neuroscience elements to be able to actually give people uh, a, a pleasant and relevant and most importantly, useful experience. So continuing on this theme of what, how you dealt with adversity and how you 
ultimately created the product that you wanted to create. I know that everything were I know that everything wasn't roses from the get-go and I would love to hear about what some of the challenges you found were as you were a building with AI and maybe even more specifically like any other challenges in creating the company and anything that comes to mind really as you look at the last X amount of months of trying to um, get everything working properly and create that well-oiled machine. Maybe it's sure. organizational challenges, whatever you, whatever is right there and comes to mind. I'll mention three things. So I'll go with first, like building with AI, right? So when I uh, really started to look at the you know concept of AI, I think it was like the summer of 2017. I was still at A and M, uh, looking to finish out my master's degree, actually, and uh, at the time, and you know, I started looking at what was really possible in this field because I had the idea that I wanted to you know build a company, but I wanted to make sure that I was utilizing you know technologies that I feel like could make people's lives easier. And as an overarching concept, obviously, you know, AI is, you know, within uh, sort of that category of things, right? It can obviously do, um, you know, I first started learning about you know, robotic process automate or, you know, uh, yeah, robotic process automation, RPA, right? You know, and to some degree, like, you, you, that's what the sort of the auto editor does for us, right? It's basically, you know, an RPA, it'll do this task, you don't have to do it anymore. And, you know, you're able to get a particular result, right? Normally, a person would do that. It sucks. They don't want to do it. And so therefore we've saved them X amount of time. All right. Uh, the interesting thing about doing that as well was I was able to, you know, also while I was at school access tons of like science papers. So I was able to like read tons of what folks were doing um, in terms of the field. And while I didn't obviously understand some of the computer science aspects of it, I could understand sort of the thought process behind what people were doing with this and, you know, allowing me to know okay, here are some like of the great minds in the field and what is it that they're really talking about? Like, what are the things that are actually keeping this science and this field from growing at that exact moment, right? And I think that that, come, that, that idea comes from, you know, being a PhD myself, right? And going through and figuring out, okay, like this is actually the thought process that goes into how you're going to approach some of these problems, right? Um, and I think that that's such a, a useful framework to have in terms of understanding the world around you and more importantly, you know, questioning what's possible, right? So challenge wise, uh, you know, there was actually, I would say this, and this is the second part of this, which is, uh, I think that it's also sometimes difficult to find the right, you know, resources as an early stage, you know, startup for AI focused work, if you don't already have that AI team member with you, or like they were a part of like, you know, kind of uh, you know, the early stages of the company. I think that that can, you know, uh, be a challenge for a lot of folks. And then you have to think about, okay, well, do we, you know, do we send this over to a shop that's actually going to do it? Do we build a relationship with a vendor partner? So there's like all of those considerations. And if you don't have a highly technical team, right, um, or like at least somebody who might be able to even understand or manage working with some of those folks, like a lot of those projects can go sour. So I'm very grateful that we have uh, a great uh, engineering head um, who's worked with lots of different types of vendor partners, including offshore. And so we've developed, you know, sort of that 24 hour dev cycle, right? So um, I think specifically, 
the interesting part about, I would say, the last 18 or so, or, you know, even 24 months has been that people didn't really understand, I think, what we were actually offering AI-wise, right? Like, we were telling them, this is what it does, this is what our AI does. And for whatever reason, I feel like once they started using, they understood it. But when you tell them the first time, it was almost like, well, I don't, I don't really care, or I don't really care about this AI thing. When ChatGPT started to get popular and we started to share that we have like, you know, AI offerings and what we do, the number of people who now wanted to know or go back into conversations was amazing, right? Because uh, now a lot of these people had educated Reverend. themselves about what AI do you know, does. It's not just like this scary T2 Terminator stuff that people want to make it out to be. Um, I even think there's some movies that were released about like, you know, AIs like, um, not like Evil Eye or anything, but like, you know, other stuff, right? So um, to me, I feel like it was that sort of flipping of the switch that got people more educated about what we were really doing. And then they really saw the value, which is kind of hilarious because it was literally the same things we said. It's literally one thing that's different, which was the introduction of, um, you know, a more widely used commercial service for consumers, right? So that was to me a very interesting part of even pitching the th uh, the value of that part of the platform but i think overall and a lot of people i think um you know maybe discount or underestimate this aspect of it which is how you position yourself right and so by having a certain suite of features and ex user experience elements we can position ourselves as something completely different than what we were originally getting uh positioned against which was lms's and we really didn't want to necessarily compete against LMSs because like they just do a lot of stuff that we really, you know, don't care to do. Now, can you use free fuse as a turnkey LMS? Absolutely. You know, not everybody needs all of those features that an LMS provides, right? Um, I mean, I used to use LMSs all the time. They're bloated with tons of stuff people never use, right? So on our end, we really wanted to focus more on the, uh, you know, sort of community and P2P, unique P2P experiences rather than, yeah, yeah hey, you can have a grade book. Right. Like that didn't make sense to us. So um, looking at how you position yourself, also tying back to the North Star of how you develop, knowing how you position yourself and knowing where you want to position yourself, maybe in the next two, three, five years allows you to then also have the right North Star in order to make sure that you develop the right stuff. Right. Because if you, you know, say that you're different from some other product that's in your market or you call yourself a new category, if all of your features are the same as the other group, well, I mean, you know, it's the whole uh, adage of if it, you know, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, then it's a duck, right? So if it's the same, if you have all the same features and all the same offerings and you try to tell everyone you're something else, it's going to be a really hard sell. Um, so uh, I would say that those things are somewhat underestimated. Um, I'm sure everybody has things like hiring challenges, scaling challenges and things like that. So I have figure that this would be actually a useful thing perhaps for folks maybe starting up. Well, Mike, I appreciate this a ton and I'm very excited that you are part of the Deep Grim startup program and we get to join on the adventure with you. Thanks for coming on here and chatting with me and I look forward to hearing updates on how everything goes with FreeFuse. Well, appreciate you and, uh, you know, uh, happy to be here and uh, hopefully I'll be able to come on again and talk soon.